0: Hello, welcome to the bore you to sleep podcast, the podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's readings come from The White Heart of Mojave, an adventure with the outdoors of the desert. Written by Edna Brush Perkins and published in 1922. The story follows two women who travel into the unknown areas of the Californian wilderness. I cherish the journeys that I have made through the scenic wonders of America, and I think this book is perfect to help you get to sleep. My name is Teddy, and my goal is to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. I hope you enjoy the episode, and if you'd be so kind, I'd love for you to leave a rating and review in your podcast app. You're always welcome to say hello, or support the podcast at boyytosleep.com. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. The White Heart of Mojave, an adventure with the outdoors of the desert. The feel of the outdoors. Beyond the walls and solid roofs of houses is the outdoors. It is always on the doorstep. The sky serene or piled with white, slow-moving clouds or full of wind and purple storm is always overhead. But walls have an engrossing quality. If there are many of them, they assert themselves and domineer. They insist on the unique importance of the contents of walls, and would have you believe that the spaces above them, the slow procession of the seasons, and the alternations of sunshine and rain are accessories, pleasant or unpleasant of walls, indeed that they were made and a bungling job too, and to be disregarded as a bungling job should be, solely that walls might exist. Perhaps your lawyer or your dentist has his office on the 19th floor of a modern skyscraper. While you wait for its ministrations, you look out of the big window. Below you, the roofs of the city spread for miles to blue hills or the bright sea. The smoke of tall chimney rolls into the sky that fills all the space between you and the horizon and the sun. The smoke of hustling prosperity fans out and floats and mixes with the clouds and becomes at last part of a majestic movement of something other than either smoke or clouds. Suddenly, the roofs that covered only tables and chairs and power machines cover romance. A million romances rise and mingle like the smoke of the tall chimneys. They mix with the romance of the clouds and the hills. You are happy. Nothing is changed around you but you are happy. You only know that the sun did it, and those far off hills. When the man you are waiting for comes in, you congratulate him on his fine view. Then the jealous walls assert themselves again. They want you to forget as soon as possible. But you never quite forget. You visit the woods, or the mountains, or the sea in your vacation. You loaf along trout streams or in red autumn woods with a gun in your hands for an excuse or chase golf balls over green hills or sail on the bay and get becalmed and do not care. For the pleasure of living outdoors, you are willing to have your eyes smart from the smoke of the campfire and to be wet and cold and to fight mosquitoes and flies. You like the feel of it. You wait for that sudden sense of romance everywhere, which is the touch of something big and simple and beautiful. It is always beyond the walls that something, but most of us have been bullied by them so much that we have to go far away to find it. Then we can bring it home and remember. Charlotte and I knew the outdoors a little. Though we were middle-aged, mothers of families, and deeply involved in the historic struggle for the vote, we sometimes looked at the sky. In our remote youth, we had a few brief experiences of the mountains and the woods. I had some not altogether contemptible peaks to my credit, and she had canoed in the Canadian wilds. So when we decided that a vacation was due, us we chose the outdoors. Our labors had been arduous, divided as they were between the clamorings of the young and our militant mission to free the world. We were thoroughly habituated to walls and set a high value on their contents. It was our habit to tell large and assorted audiences that freedom consists in casting a ballot at regular intervals and taking your rightful place in a great democracy. Nor did it seem anomalous, or perhaps it should have, that our chiefest desire was to escape from every manifestation of democracy in the solitariness of some wild and lonely place far from city halls, smokestacks, national organisations and streets of little houses, all alike. For some time, the desire had been cutting through our work with an edge of restlessness. We called it need for a vacation, not knowing that every desire to withdraw from the crowd is a personal assertion and a protest against the struggle and worry, the bluff and banality and everlasting tail-chasing which goes on inside the walls of the stately estate house and the two-room suite with bath. Our real craving was not for a play hour, but for the wild and lonely place and a different kind of freedom from that about which we had been preaching. Our choice of the wild and lonely place was circumscribed by the fact that we had been offered the use of an automobile from Los Angeles. The automobile was a much appreciated gift, but we regretted that Los Angeles had to be the starting point, because Southern California is the blissful goal of the Tired East, and the Tired East was what we needed to escape from. We left home without plans, too many plans in vacation, are millstones hung around your neck. Sure only that such places as Santa Barbara, Redlands, Riverside, and San Diego would be for us nothing more than points on the way to somewhere else. An atlas showed a great empty space just east of the Sierra Nevada Range, ...and the San Bernardino Mountains vaguely designated as the Mojave Desert. It was surprising to find the greater part of Southern California... ...the much-advertised home of the biggest fruit and flowers in the world included in it. A few crisscross lines indicated mountains north of the Santa Fe Railroad... ...which crosses the Mojave on the way to the coast... The words Death Valley were printed between two groups of them. In the south of Big White Space, similarly surrounded, was the Imperial Valley, and the names of a few towns sprangled out from the railroad. Nothing else. Was the desert just a white space like that? The word had a mixed connotation. It suggested monotony, sterility... Death and also big open spaces, gold and blue sunsets, and fascination. We collected that some author had written about the terrible fascination of the desert. The white blank on the map looked very wild and lonely. We went to Los Angeles on the Santa Fe in order to see what it might contain. We looked at it. After leaving the high plateau of northern Arizona, the railroad crosses the Colorado River and enters the lowlands of the Mojave Desert. That is the first glimpse the tourist has of California, but he hardly realizes that it is California, for it is so different from the pictures on the timetables and hotel folders. At Needle's, he usually pulls down the window shades against the too hot sun and forgets the dust and heat in the pages of The Last Best Seller or else he goes out on the California Limited which spares its passengers the dusty horrors of the desert by crossing the Mojave at nine. His California and ours when we left Chicago consists of the charming bungalows with date palms in their dooryards and yellow roses climbing their porches the square orange groves of all the brushed and combed for dress parade the picturesque missions and the white towns with streets shaded by feathery pepper trees west of the backbone of the Sierras not the hundreds of miles of desolation east of them hour after hour we pounded through it in a hot monotony of yellow dust. Hour after hour, great sweeps of blue-green brush led off to the mountains, blue and red, against the sky. We passed black lava beds and strange shining flats of baked clay and cliff-like rocks. It was very vast, the railroad seemed a tiny thread of life, Through an endless solitude. The train stopped at forlorn stations consisting of a few buildings stark on the course, gravelly sand. Sometimes a gang of swarthy Mexicans stopped work on the track to watch us go by. Sometimes a house stood alone in the brush. Sometimes a lonely automobile crawled along the highway beside the railroad. It was empty and vast, and over it all the sun poured a white flood. In spite of the dust and glare, a fascinated curiosity kept us looking out of the dirty windows all day. Occasionally, dim wagon tracks led toward the mountains, some of which were high and set on wide, solid foundations. They were immovable old, old mountains. Shadows cut sharply into the smooth brightness of their sides. Their colours changed, and the sand ran between them like beckoning roads. Come, it seemed to say, and find what is hidden here. Once we saw a man with three burros loaded with cooking utensils and bedding. He was travelling across country through the sagebrush. Where could he be going? Unconsciously, I asked the question aloud, and Charlotte answered. He is a prospector looking for a gold mine. Don't you see his pick on the second mule? Please say burro, I pleaded. It gives a better atmosphere. Besides, it is not a mule. It is an ass. Those are the old dad mountains over there. Those big rosy ones. That's where he is going, up the long path of the sand. He will camp there. Perhaps he is not a prospector. He may have a mine, already. Of course he has one, I assented. All the prospectors are dead. They died of thirst in Death Valley. My prospector did not. He is going to his mine. He tries to work it himself, but it does not pay very well because he can't get enough out and he can't sell it because too many booms have failed and nobody will invest. So he goes up and down in the sun and has a good time. Perhaps you could have a good time going up and down in the sun through those empty spaces that stretched so endlessly on either side of the track. I wondered if we might not go to the Imperial Valley and see that strange thing, the New Sultan Sea, a lake in the desert. But Charlotte objected, because that part of the white blank was partially under irrigation, too near the coast, and would be too civilized and full of ranches I doubted much of it the tired east went there, for I thought that it was the desert like this, only hotter, worse. She declared that the tired east went everywhere that it could go. Evidently, it could not reach Mojave, for certainly it was not rushing around in automobiles trying to be happy, nor pouring the savings for its short holiday. Into the money bags of conscienceless hotel companies. Mojave was indeed a blank, a wild and lonely place. I think, Charlotte remarked after a time, that we will go to Death Valley. Why? Because I am tired of looking at the twenty mule team borax boxes and wondering what kind of place they came from that could have a name like that. I thought it was not a sufficient reason for me to risk my life. I think, she said, that it is the wildest and loneliest place of all. Nobody goes there except your prospectors, and you say they are all dead. Think of the gold and jewels they did not find lying around everywhere. Think of the hotness and brightness. It must be an awful, lonesome, sparkling place. It must be. Those reasons appealed to me. But the idea was a bit upsetting considering that we had started for a happy-go-lucky vacation, a little like playing with a kitten and having it turn into a tiger. Mojave was like a tiger, terrible and fascinating. From the windows of the Santa Fe train, it was a savage, ruthless-looking country, naked in the sun. It repelled us and held us. We could not keep our eyes off it. They ached from straining to pierce the distances where the beckoning roads were lost in brightness. Mountains and valleys full of outdoors, nothing but outdoors. What was the feel of being alone in the sagebrush? How free the sweep of the wind must be. How hot the sun, how immense the deep night sky. Thus the wild and lonely place was selected. A strange outdoors for a truly holiday and adventure with it. How we found Mojave. When the automobile was delivered into our hands at Los Angeles, we wanted to turn around immediately and drive back through the Cajon Pass into the Mojave Desert. But our inquiries about directions met with discouragement on every side. It seemed to be unheard of for two women to attempt such a thing. The distances between the towns where we could get accommodations were too great and the roads were apt to have long stretches of sand where we would get stuck. Our friends drew a dismal picture of us sitting out in the sagebrush beside a disabled car and slowly starving to death. You could not fix it, they said, and what would you do? We suggested that we might wait until somebody came along. They assured us that nobody ever came along. We went to the automobile club. They received us with enthusiasm and told us all about the places California is proud of and also how to get to them. But California seems not to be proud of the desert for when we mentioned it, our advisors became gloomy. They seemed to have no very definite information and were sure we would not like it. In the face of so much discouragement, we hardly dared to ask about Death Valley, and when we did, hesitatingly, the question was ignored. We simply could not get there. Nobody ever went. The Imperial Valley seemed to be almost as bad. One of the maps they gave us showed a main highway from San Diego over into it, but they said that it was only a gravel road, mountainous and steep, and that we had better stick to the main routes. Evidently, they had no faith in our skill as drivers, nor belief in our purpose, so we soon gathered up the maps and innumerable folders about resort hotels, thanked them, and went on our way. The collection contained no map of the Mojave. She had called us, but not loudly enough as yet, and now that we no longer saw her, we remembered her terribleness more than her fascination. We would content ourselves with the Imperial Valley, at least for a beginning, but we said nothing more about it, and started down the coast with every appearance of having a ladylike program. In our then mood, we hated the coast and were guilty of speeding along the fine macadam between Los Angeles and San Diego in our eagerness to leave it we turned due east from the green little city on the shores of its beautiful harbour and headed for the desert. Our unsatisfactory interview at the Automobile Club had led us to believe that the Imperial Valley, irrigated or not, was a wild and lonely place, the desert itself, for it seemed to be surrounded by difficulties. The road from San Diego proved to be good, presenting no hindrances, not easily surmounted, and as we drove along it, we told each other what we thought about the automobile club. Gradually, the character of the country changed. A little of the prickly, spiky, desert vegetation with which we were to become so familiar appeared. The round hills gave the way to the piles of bare, coloured rock. The soil became a gravelly sand, on which scrub oak and Mzantia grew. The houses became fewer. In one place, we had to detour and found deep, soft sand. Nothing to the sand of a real desert road, but we did not know that then. The change was subtle, Yet we felt it. The country took on the harshness that had repelled us from the train windows. Being alone in it was at first a little dreadful. After a day or so of leisurely driving, we came suddenly to the edge of the valley. The ground fell before us, cut into the rough canyons and foothills, 2,000 feet to a blue depth. It was like a great hole full of blue mist, surrounded by red and chocolate-colored mountains. Nothing was clear down there, the mountains were sharply defined, and had an indigo shadows on them. The valley was a pure light blue of the quality of the sky, as though the sky had reached down into it. We lingered a long time eating our lunch on a jagged rock, trying to pierce the blue veils and see the Salton Sea, a big salt lake which we knew was there, with the tracks of the southern Pacific beside it, the sand dunes we had heard of, and the town of El Centro where we were to spend the night. We could see nothing of them, only a fantasy, of changing color and unreality. We found the whole desert full of drama, but the Imperial Valley is perhaps the most dramatic spot of all, except Death Valley, that other deep hole below sea level, which is so much more remote and so utterly lonely. The Great Basin of the Imperial Valley was once a part of the ocean until the gradual silting up onto its narrow opening separated it from the Gulf of California. The bottom of the valley then became an inland sea, which slowly evaporated under the hot sun, leaving as it receded a thick deposit of salt on the sand. At last the valley was dry, a deep glistening bowl between chocolate-coloured mountains, a white desolation undisturbed by man or beast, covered with silence. For ages it lay, thus while morning and evening painted the hills. Then the railroad came with its thread of life, connecting Yuma with San Bernardino and Los Angeles. Soon a salt works was begin in what had been built at the bottom of the ocean, and later an irrigation system for the southern end of the valley from the Colorado River, which flows just east of the Chocolate Mountains. The white desolation was made to bloom, and in spite of the intense heat of summer, had become one of the most richest farming districts of California. But the drama is still going on. A few years ago, the untamed Colorado River that had fought its way through the Grand Canyon and come 200 miles across the desert turned wild and flooded into the Imperial Valley. It was shut out again, but it left the new Sultan Sea in the old ocean bed. Its yellow waves now break near the irrigated area. It drowned the salt works. The Sultan Sea is slowly vanishing, as its predecessor did. In a little while, the valley will again be dry and white and glistening. The road descended before us in jig-jags to the blue depth, it was a good road but narrow in places, dropping sheer at the edge and steep. Very carefully we drove down, emerging at last through a narrow rough canyon onto the sandy floor of the valley, a macadam road. ...like a shining band through the sagebrush. This evidence of civilization was strange in the surrounding wilderness... ...for as yet we could see no sign of life in the valley. The sand came up to the edge of the road... ...and was blown into dunes between us and the new sea. There was nothing but sunshine and sagebrush and flowers... The flowers amazed us, for why should they grow there? There was a yellow kind that outshone our perennial garden corrupses, and numberless little flowers pressed close to the sand with spread out velvet, or shining, or crinkled blue, or frosted leaves. We had to get out of the car to see them, and whenever we got out, we felt the heat blaze around us. We were below sea level, and even in February, it was very hot. The light was almost blinding, and a silver heat shimmer swam between us and the mountain walls. The mountains seemed to be of many colors, which changed as the afternoon advanced. The sun set in, a more vivid purple and gold than we had ever seen. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope it helped you feel a little drowsy. If you're not feeling quite drowsy yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the podcast. I look forward to bringing you more episodes. And until then, good night.